So the VR experience, which I think is what people mostly default to when it comes to the term, the metaverse, we think there are tremendous use cases for that. You see it in gaming, you see it in exercise and fitness and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't think there's a world where people are going to be spending the majority of their life under these headsets. <laughs> we think that unlocking computing over the world through hardware that is connected to the real world is probably what that future looks like. And we have a little bit of confidence because we're seeing the way that AR is being used in our platform so much right now. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast, Sid Finkelstein here, and my guest today is Kenny Mitchell. Kenny is a former student who is the chief marketing officer of Snap. Snap is the parent of Snapchat, which you may have heard of, and we're in kind of a tough time lately with the giant technology bellwethers, whether it's Google or Meta, even Apple and Microsoft. And Snap's in the same family, a little bit smaller, of course, than all of those. And they've been getting some bad news lately in terms of earnings and the direction of earnings. But here we are in the late fall of 2022. And it's not exactly an ideal time for a lot of companies. But Snap itself is just such an interesting business. Do you know what it is? Do you remember this? I remember when it first came on, I thought, what a crazy idea. But then it got picked up. People started using it. People loved it. I mean, Snap is you record this video, short video, and you could send it to your friends or your connections. And then it disappears. There's no record of it. And I thought, why would somebody want to do that? But it actually models regular communication. You know, you and I are talking to each other and we're talking. There's no record of what I just said to you or what you just said to me, typically. And it turns out that a lot of advertisers find it really interesting. They're in a tough neighborhood, right? Because TikTok has just been beating up on everyone for some time. And Meta and Instagram is a major competitor as well. But it's just interesting to talk to someone who's at the center of one of these kind of cool companies with a well-known founder who hired Kenny himself. Kenny's a really creative guy. He's in charge of all branding and business marketing efforts for Snap. And he's all about building really a global community of users. Kenny was at McDonald's. He was at Gatorade. He was even at NASCAR. And Gatorade is owned by PepsiCo. So he was at some blue chip marketing companies. And now he's in Silicon Valley. And it's interesting when we talk about his job, he will share how it's different from other marketing jobs and how the fact that in a tech company, the software engineers are in charge, the data geeks are in charge, something as quote unquote soft as marketing and branding is a different type of story. But I think the company has been very supportive of his work. And he himself has got just a great track record. He was named one of the most creative people in business, in business by Fast Company. He's listed in 25 most innovative CMOs, chief marketing officers. He's won numerous creative awards, including Cannes Lyon Awards, which is in Cannes as a famous film festival is, but it's for advertising. He's got two Emmy, Emmy nominations as well. So really uh, interesting person, interesting job and a challenging one because the world of tech is, as I said, really not simple. Kenny and I are going to talk about his life and his career, but also a lot about Snap and what they do and why they do it. And also artificial intelligence has come into this pretty significantly. And what does it mean to be a brand leader, to be a marketing leader in a Silicon Valley company that historically has always valued product and technology above everything else? So it's a great conversation. Kenny is very gracious and smart and interesting. And I know you're going to enjoy the conversation. Here he is, Kenny Mitchell. 
Welcome to the SITCAST. I'm here with one of my great former students and now CMO of SNAP, Kenny Mitchell. Hi, Kenny. Hello, Sid. Pleasure to be on with you. I feel pretty honored to be among the people that you profile on your podcast. So thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. We have been fortunate to have such interesting conversations with lots and lots of people, and this would be no different. I thought we should start with Snap and the world of social media and the industry, and then maybe back into a little bit about you and how you got into this and kind of your own career journey, because I like to talk about all of that, and we'll see whatever direction that goes. Sounds good. While we would assume that just about everyone knows Snap, I'm going to ask you for your own take. What is this? Because it was, of course, Snapchat, but what is Snap? So Snap is the parent company of Snapchat. It is a company founded by our two co-founders, Evan Spiegel and Bobby Murphy, who were college classmates at Stanford. And they had this insight back when they were in school that with the profligation of mobile devices, that communication between friends would be really powerful if it were visual versus text. So that was one of the big core insights that they had. The second core insight that they had was that they were folks that grew up with traditional social media. And going into college, they found that there are pictures and information online about them that didn't give them the ability to kind of freely grow and age and change and evolve. So this idea of communications more closely mimicking what communications between humans are, being that they are ephemeral, meaning that they disappear and aren't there forever, and that they're personal. So they're one-to-one or one-to-few communications versus broadcast communication was the other big insight around Snapchat. So at its core, Snapchat is a kind of visual communication app or platform that helps to enhance relationships between like your friends and your family and even your connection to the world with augmented reality, which we'll talk a little bit about. And it's something that our community really loves. So there's over 350 million people now that use Snapchat every single day to connect with their friends and send them snaps. It's kind of based on those two insights of communicating visually and doing it in a way that you feel really safe. Wow, 350 million around the world. How big is the U.S. compared to everywhere else? Yeah, so the U.S. is roughly 100 million of that. So yeah, so the balance is outside the U.S. We're bigger outside of the U.S. than we are within the country, but we have obviously very strong penetration here in the U.S. Are you in China? How do you manage that? Yeah, we do not have a business in China right now. And you'll find it that's true for a, a variety of social media, digital companies. It's a little complicated operating in China. And we do work with many Chinese businesses in terms of what we call export businesses. So they are looking to connect with audiences outside of China to try to advertise or grow their business. We have a pretty meaningful export business out of China, but our service is not offered there. So let's see if we can place Snap in the broad ecosystem of apps that for the casual observer or listener will say, well, what's different? And we're going to start with TikTok, of course. How do we compare TikTok to Snap and Snapchat? Yeah, yeah. So TikTok is a self-professed like entertainment platform. So it is a place where you go to consume interesting and trendy videos. It's a place that is really caught fire, particularly post the pandemic. And it's about short video consumption. And it probably sits more closely with a platform like YouTube, which is also a video consumption platform. 
And then to a certain extent, Instagram as well as a video consumption platform. As I mentioned before with Snap, we are a bit more of a communications platform and tools. That use case is pretty unique to Snap, but TikTok has been a business that's been on fire. And it's been because of the real significant growth in UGC-based video consumption. It's interesting to think about how many new apps keep coming out during maybe the early days of the pandemic. Was it called Clubhouse? Is that the one that everyone was talking about on fire? Everyone was talking about it and it's kind of disappeared. I don't know about disappeared, might be a little harsh, but not that far off compared to where everybody was talking about that. Yeah. What do you think about that idea? But just more generally, I'm thinking about Snap as one of the biggest players here. One app is like a Star Wars thing, right? One laser app after another coming after you. And of course, coming after lots of other players that are doing something related. Clubhouse is a really interesting example because I think that it it was a kind of like a new and interesting take on audio more broadly. And it just got like a tremendous amount of engagement and support pretty early on. And I think what they found and what a lot of new apps and businesses find is that it can be tricky to quickly build a defendable and ownable business against platforms that in many cases already have the audience that you're looking to build. So it requires a level of innovation and nimbleness that is sometimes really tricky. What you tend to find, Sid, is that the businesses and platforms that are meaningfully differentiated and offer like a core value proposition to a very specific consumer set, those are the ones that tend to have good stickiness. It was not surprising to me to see several platforms like pop up with their audio version of their business or their tool. And I think it was Twitter, I believe it was Twitter Spaces that ended up finding kind of the most success in the audio space. In some ways, I wasn't surprising because you were hearing so much about Clubhouse on Twitter. (laughs) So once you had comparable capabilities without needing to leave that service, it just proved out how difficult it can be to compete in some of these businesses. Who would you say is your biggest or are your biggest competitors? When it comes to on the business sides, we're an advertisement based platform with a pretty unique audience profile of folks that are hard to reach. But our biggest platforms are other digital advertising based platforms. So that would be Facebook would be a huge competitor near a behemoth relative to snap size. Instagram is kind of a part of the greater meta family is a big competitor. And TikTok is a growing competitor as well. What's interesting with them, Sid, is they are a part of a much larger conglomerate, which is ByteDance, which is a business that is comparable in size to Meta and Facebook. It seems like it was a startup that just came out of nowhere. (laughs) But ByteDance has, I want to say, five or six different multi-billion dollar platforms under their umbrella. Many of them get their origin in China. And then if TikTok specifically has found success outside of China, those are the businesses that tend to be our biggest competitors. But we're on the lookout for all new entrants and businesses out there. There's a new platform called Be Real that's become pretty popular on the high school and collegiate campuses that we have our eyes on. And as responsible business owners, we're constantly scouring to see what, what else is cropping up. So what would you say is the demographic then for the typical Snap customer? Is a trend younger than Meta or is it similar? Or is it all over the map? I'd say it'll be a bit market dependent, Sid, but I'd say for the lion's share of our most developed markets, we are a service most penetrated with Gen Z and younger millennials. So think Mm -hmm. like 13 to 34. 
13 to 35 is where we have tremendous strength. Here in the U.S., for example, we reach a little more than 75 percent of anyone in between 13 to 35 in the U.S. And that's true for about 20 different countries in which our platform has material distribution. What's interesting, Sid, is there are some countries that I hold out, Norway, as well as some countries in MENA, like Saudi Arabia, where we actually have tremendous penetration across all demographics. So I spent much of this summer in Europe, partially because there are some like business conferences and my team's been growing there and wanted to get a little bit of market empathy. So I spent some time in Norway where in that market, two out of three people, two out of three Norwegians are daily Snapchat users. Is this just a random thing? There's a hundred countries that you're competing <laughs> in. And so it's got to be one or two outliers. What's happening? There? Yeah, it was actually really fascinating. It's a confluence of factors. I think first and foremost, it's one of the places that we went to pretty early. So in terms of digital platforms and services, we were second entrant right behind Facebook. So being early is often an advantage. I'd say secondarily, there's something cultural about Norwegians where they are a little less showboaty, a little bit more to themselves, and also really, really value close connections versus the kind of like a broadcast world. So they kind of aspire to the use case of, hey, I want to connect with my friends and my family. I had a young woman who's on my team out there who told me she had a streak going with her grandmother. And a streak in Snapchat language means that you have sent a snap to a person and they since you won in a day. And each day mm-hmm. that you continue that is kind of a streak. And she had a streak of 1600 days of snapping with her grandmother over five years. <laughs> she was an interesting proxy of this desire to stay kind of connected and engaged with your family. Another thing that we really benefited from in Norway was there was a television show that was very, very popular when Snap first got on the scene there. Within that show, It actually, the Snapchat UI and user experience was profiled. It was the way that people communicated on the show. Mm -hmm. The show was very, very popular. The actors and actresses in the show were also heavy Snapchat users. And there was content on Snapchat connected to the show. So it was like a part of the cultural zeitgeist for several years. That was very Norwegian. It was a Norwegian specific show. It was like a crime show. That actually was like a proof point to show that, you know, it's a core part of culture. All these different factors, Sid, of early entry. There's some cultural components to it. There's being a part cultural zeitgeist early on that just made the platform really relevant and it stuck. That is a really interesting case in Norway that I bet most people outside of Norway or your business would not have known. It makes me think about science versus art and how much science there is. Because what you just described, there were some good things that happened, but you didn't do them. <laughs> that TV show, <laughs> you didn't do that, right? Maybe you capitalized on it, but it happened for reasons that whatever it happened. And of course, you'd love to replicate that type of success in every market that you're competing in. Sure. Because I know you're very focused on creativity and creative thinking. The question really is, well, how much science is there in here? And how do you apply science versus the art and slash creativity of creating a brand that gets people turned on, that they want to use it and make it part of their life? That's a wonderful, wonderful question, which is particularly relevant in my role (laughs) at a tech company. 
So marketing is naturally part science, part art, but the ponderance of employees here are engineers and product people <laughs> that are very, very analytical. And the proof points for them need to have some hard attribution and quantitative metrics behind them. So I find both for our business in macro and then for my role in micro that the balance of the art and the science is kind of the place where we end up finding some success. One good example of that, Sid, is that one of the other things that Snapchat is really well known for and as a leader in is in augmented reality. Augmented reality comes in the form of what people often call these filters or we call lenses, which is basically this computing that's overlaid on what you see visually. And they started in the form of these puking rainbows or putting doggy ears on folks as a way to kind of lower the barrier between sending a snap and communicating. So you didn't feel any real pressure. It was just very fun and has evolved into very utilitarian use cases where you can try on clothing or makeup or accessories and apparels and brands are really engaging in that. What often happens with these AR lenses is that many of them will go viral. They'll become like incredibly popular. And that actually contributes to bringing people back onto the service or new people trying the service that hadn't before because they've seen mm -hmm. this fun and this creativity that Snap's created that lives in other places. So we try basically with that tailwind behind us, try to put a little bit of fuel on the fire of when you have these moments that are art driven in a lot of way, and then amplify it with science, if that makes any sense, <laughs> from yeah. a marketing perspective to try to put a little bit of amplification that ends up being oftentimes a meaningful driver of growth for our business. Is that the case that you actually have a templates, like business processes, something starts to hit a little bit for whatever random reason or artistic or creative reason, and you jump on in the way that you described, I'm sure you don't reinvent the wheel each time. You got a bunch of things that you do and you're all set up to do them. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we more or less have a playbook. We have a lens that has either virality potential or unexpectedly goes viral, where we will put our comms machine, our paid media machine, our creator and influencer machine mm -hmm. behind it. We will often use it as a bit of a catalyst to try to bring in new users across the globe that may be aware of it for some reason or another. So we definitely have a playbook that we try that we build and continue to like fine tune and shape to take advantage or sometimes even create those moments. Do other things that are emerging and the metaverse play into your strategy at Snap? I don't know, NFTs and all kinds of various ways we're seeing AR and even VR going. I imagine everyone in your business has to figure, is trying to figure this out in real time. I mean, Facebook's changed their name, so <laughs> the stakes couldn't be any higher for them. And I guess everyone else is competing with them. How do you look at that in the future? Because for a lot of people, that are not immersed in this. It's just not intuitive. I had NFTs explained to me by a 25 year old and then I understood it, but I didn't really follow it before. And now I kind of think we should create NFTs for some of our tuck experiences, but that's another story. <laughs> the metaverse is kind of fascinating to me, Sid. I think it's emerged as a umbrella term connected to all of these next generation technology platforms. If I were to ask you, how do you find a metaphor? Anyone would have the same answer, <laughs> but it's mm -hmm. some kind of combination of VR in the virtual world, AR, the blockchain, NFTs, crypto, like all of these emerging technologies, there wasn't a handle for it. And then the metaverse kind of emerged as a term for it. And it becomes a bit of an umbrella for these next generation technologies. 
I'd say that our emphasis is on augmented reality. It's something that Snap helped to pioneer seven, eight years ago. And it's something that we're seeing a tremendous amount of utility on our platform right now. So right now on Snapchat, on a daily basis, we have about 250 million people that use AR lenses as a part of their communication. It's an existing trend. Like the metaverse, as it's often described, is like, hey, this is five years, 10 years down the road. But we actually have something that's happening right now at tremendous, tremendous scale on our platform every single day. So that's really our focus is really building out more and more advanced AR experiences and looking to kind of establish an ecosystem around augmented reality, because that's what we believe is the true next computing platform, because we're following consumer behavior and it's happening already. When we talk about augmented reality, as I mentioned, it's something where we're seeing enormous amount of utility and scale on our platform today. Oftentimes when folks talk about the metaverse, A, it's not clear exactly what folks may be talking about, but it's clear that it's far off future. It's something that may be happening 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future while we have our experiences that are getting tremendous scale on our platform right now. And we've evolved into building out within Snap Inc. more broadly, a bit of an augmented reality ecosystem. And it starts with a set of software tools that we offer free called Lens Studio. And it is the creation and syndication platform that our internal team uses to create AR experiences. We mm-hmm. offer it to developers and to creators so that they can actually start building interesting experiences and publishing them into Snapchat. And we have over 250,000 developers and creators who have published experiences into Snapchat. And many of them are actually beginning to build their own businesses where they are building AR experiences on behalf of brands. And that's like their full-time job or an agency that they've created that are building these experiences. And we're looking to create what we kind of call these win-win-win scenarios, like a true platform and ecosystem where you have these developers that are making really fun and interesting and utilitarian experiences that our community enjoys and loves and uses at scale that businesses and brands are actually using to actually help drive their brand objectives or their performance objectives through augmented reality. So that's our big focus, Sid, is like helping to catalyze that ecosystem and with a big emphasis on augmented reality. And our future state is really thinking about how hardware will play a role in this augmented reality-based future. So if you've seen or heard from Snap, we've had these glasses called Spectacles that we launched for the first time several years ago. We've launched a few different iterations and versions since then. And they're camera-based hardware because we believe that this computing overlaid on the world, it will exist past the mobile device. Doing it in an immersive and hands-free environment in the real world is where we actually think it's going to have the most applicability. So the VR experience, which I think is what people mostly default to when it comes to the term, the metaverse, we think there are tremendous use cases for that. You see it in gaming, you see it in exercise and fitness and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't think there's a world where people are going to be spending the majority of their life under these headsets. <laughs> we think that unlocking computing over the world through hardware that is connected to the real world is probably what that future looks like. And we have a little bit of confidence because we're seeing the way that AR is being used in our platform so much right now. So that's really interesting. Of course, it makes people think about those Google glasses that were 
very early and didn't work, but almost require that there has to be a few pioneers that start to figure this out. What would a user be able to do wearing these spectacles that they couldn't do it without that? So we have a few versions out right now that are actually fun to play with. My favorite experience is actually the solar system. So think of it as an education use case where you get the solar system that literally sits right in front of you. You're able to look at the solar system with the size of the Earth compared to the size of the sun, compared to the distance from Pluto. Being able to see that kind of in real time and in movement right in front of you is a very compelling experience versus looking at it in a book. You know, (laughs) one of our recent lenses that we launched actually helped to teach people how to do CPR. So teaching you about both the cadence, the pressure, the movement connected to having a CPR experience. We just launched that last week, if I'm not mistaken, in connection to a World Health Day. There are some education use cases Mm -hmm. that you can experience that'll be enhanced via augmented reality that we're super excited about. There's also things that like with hands-free connectivity that can be a lot of fun. So we've seen folks that are almost using it from like an architectural or engineering perspective, like building things right in front of you and co-building with others. So there's a fun game that we have created through Snapchat, actually, that you can build a Lego set. Could be a car or a plane using shared AR. So you're both looking at the same experience through AR and you're building together. And you can imagine how that can evolve into a ton of different use cases in that building and like combining that virtual and tactile experience. These examples are really intriguing. It makes me think about what's the world going to look like, say, advanced economies when VR, AR, and to some extent VR, but even what you just said, starts to become more common. You don't have to be in a room with people to work on a project. You could be anywhere, which, of course, has advantages, but clearly disadvantages from a social and a living point of view. And it seems like so much innovation in Silicon Valley is going towards these ideas of making people more removed from their physical social environment. You've heard that from many others, no doubt. What do you say about that? It's a really good insight and something to really be mindful about. And that's probably part of the reason why we have so much confidence in augmented reality, because it's augmenting your real world and your real environment versus taking you out of your real world and real environment. All of these augmented reality experiences that we're exploring are really intended to be best enjoyed (laughs) in the real world. (laughs) And in your real world environment with your friends or with your family or activities that you care deeply about, that is our focus. And why we think the role of augmented reality in terms of enhancing your real world is potentially better for society in the long run versus being in a world where everything is virtual and you're losing some of those one-on-one connections. Something that'd be interesting, Sid, for you to even have some of the students at Tuck look at is the book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. In this book is where the term metaverse was first used. The book, I don't want to totally steal the thunder of the book, but it basically describes a world that the real world has been so difficult for people Mm -hmm. that they find their greatest enjoyment and greatest escape in this virtual world. That virtual world is called the metaverse. Essentially, if you believe that future to be true, the foil is the real world. 
we actually believe, and I believe personally very strongly that the real world's amazing. And if technology can enhance the real world, then wonderful. But if technology contributes to the erosion of those personal connections, the erosion of the way we experience the real world, that is probably not working to our advantage long-term. Right. I mean, it's ironic because the way you describe what's special about Snap is about communication, communicating with friends, with connections, and also for business reasons as well. I'm wondering how you fit into Snap as a marketing expert, a creative person. I don't think that you're a software engineer, though you've done many, many things along the way. Maybe you could do that, but I don't think you've actually done that. And you said you're surrounded by a lot of people that are analytical, et cetera. That's exactly what we think of when we think of Silicon Valley. We think about all these companies. So it's not unique to Snap. But I guess I'm wondering how they relate to you as this creative person that isn't only about analytics. I know there are plenty of marketing analytics, not about that, but not the same as software engineering. Yeah. I suspect that maybe along the way, you've had to do some education for people to understand just what that role is. Because I know a lot of people that are in that deep tech world and they don't always see outside of what they're doing. I think that's a fair assessment that marketing in and of itself as a discipline plays a bit of a different role than it does in other places I've been. So I've spent my career, I started my post-tuck career um, at PepsiCo, most of that working on the Gatorade business. And I often describe to people that different companies and different industries have different centers of gravity. So the center of gravity at a place like PepsiCo, which would also be true for a PNG or a Kraft or a General Mills, the center of gravity is marketing. The marketing team is actually building out the strategic business plan. They're building out the innovation pipeline. They're dealing with pricing, distribution, promotion, and innovation, the full funnel of the business. So the center of gravity really sits with the marketing organization. I spent a little bit of time at McDonald's. And at McDonald's, wouldn't be surprising to know is that operations is the center of gravity. So I couldn't do a promotion for a quarter pounder without making sure that you can get it to the 14,000 restaurants in the U.S. The franchisee, because it's a franchise driven business model, their name is also owner operators because operations are so critical to being able to consistently and safely deliver the McDonald's experience. And so as a marketer, I had to make sure that my operations team was down for what we were trying to do, because if they weren't, then it really jammed us up. For tech companies, they are typically product centric organizations. The product, which is not surprising, is where the center of gravity is for tech companies, particularly software companies. So our co-founders, Evan Spiegel, who is the CEO and is my boss, he is a product designer by trade. And our other co-founder is an engineer. So you kind of got the front end and the back end <laughs> working <laughs> together for the product and the product build. And what you tend to see in tech companies is much of their initial growth is organic and driven by network effects. And typically the marketing in their world is actually just getting the product out there, delivering a strong product experience, which is obviously very, very important. But as your company begins to mature, that is often the time where they're like, oh, we actually need to build a real marketing practice. This was true for Twitter, where at about the seven or eight year mark, they brought in their first CMO, true for YouTube, true for Google, true for Facebook, and true for Snap as well. So I came to Snap right around the seven, eight year mark where the company was just beginning to mature and it professionalized what a marketing organization needs to be and help to kind of build that practice here. With it, it actually took, to your point, a fair amount of education of the role that marketing plays to help contribute to growth 
help contribute to shaping the perception of the brand, help contribute to driving awareness of the products, features, services, benefits, et cetera, of the platform. So that has been a part of the core journey. It's like, hey, this is the role that marketing plays. And then given it's such an analytically focused business, having the data to support and back that up, getting that insights and analytics infrastructure place so that you can support and back up your efforts and your programs in a way that showcases the impact that they've had on the business. Do you find that you've had to create that type of analytical backbone at Snap when previously at, say, Pepsi or McDonald's, there was such a deep intuition, especially Pepsi, let's just use that as an example, deep intuition and decades and decades of experience of the power of marketing. It's not like you have to make the case there. It's everything. And it sounds like at Snap, you had to, and you probably continue to have to make the case in a way that is understood by the dominant core, which is the product design and the software engineer. You're absolutely right. We had to build out those capabilities because they didn't exist here because they didn't have much of a marketing practice. Yeah, I had to benefit at the PepsiCo's of the world where there was institutional confidence, faith, and belief of the role of marketing because they're marketing-driven organizations. But they also had the attribution tools, the measurements, the insights, all of the analytics to support it with longitudinal <laughs> perspective on how businesses measured performance and growth. So yeah, we had to build that engine and that capability here. And we continue to both educate inform and showcase the impact that our team and then our work is having, particularly because marketing can be expensive. It can be a pretty expensive component of any business's P&L. Media is expensive. Producing marketing assets is expensive. Engaging with external audiences almost always has a gatekeeper that has a material cost associated with it. So some of the activities that we do, we need to make sure that we're showcasing the impact of those programs. Very interesting. Along the way in your own career, you've done a lot of different things that have brought you into pretty public arena. And then I was just looking and you've been nominated for Emmy Awards. Yeah. What's up with that? That was pretty interesting. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Pretty cool. So that happened on two occasions. And there's Emmy Awards that are given out, Sid, to basically some of the best advertising in the world. And they're a part of the daytime Emmys programs. It's not the nighttime show you see on TV. <laughs> it's a part of the daytime Emmys program. It's really kind of gratifying. There were two programs in particular that I worked on when I was on the Gatorade business that both were nominated. The first was a campaign that we did to celebrate Peyton Manning's retirement, essentially. Mm -hmm. He was retiring from the NFL. We had this insight from him and his family that Peyton was like a big letter writer. So he would write letters to his coaches, write letters to the equipment manager, his teammate. He got it from his mom who told him that the importance of like a handwritten note at how much it means. Mm -hmm. So we took that insight and basically said we cobbled together letters that he'd written to about two dozen different people and used the words from those letters to write a letter to Peyton. So using his own words. Using his words to write the letter to him. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And then we had each of the folks that he had written those letters to read out the different components. So it like strung along a message directly to him. 
read out from people that he's cared about and has written letters to. And we made that into an ad campaign. And so we did some other things around it, but that was kind of like the core idea and insight. And it was just really powerful. There's a kind of piece you watch and it made your the hairs in the back of your neck up a little bit because they were so cool. And it so happened that we launched that campaign soon after Peyton is the host of the ESPYs, which is ESPN's awards. They actually profiled the campaign within the ESPYs and then they made like a little parody of it with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. It's like really, really cool. So it caught a bit of the cultural zeitgeist at the time. The other thing that we did was we celebrated Usain Bolt and his journey an origin story. And we decided to do it in animated format. And he had this little thing that got him into track and field was coach of his, a soccer coach, actually, who told him like, hey, if you race this kid, if you're faster than him, I'll give you this box lunch. And it was <laughs> like delicious Caribbean meal with plantains and cabbage and chicken and everything. He was hungry. He forgot his lunch that day. So he beat the kid in this race and it was like the thing that propelled him. So we told it in a very, very cool animated form, really fun story. And that, that was also acknowledged. So it's a testament. I love storytelling. I love creativity and had the pleasure of working on those programs. Both of those examples are sports examples. And of course, you have a sports background, having been a basketball player at Dartmouth. Does Snap lend itself to sports more than any of the other major apps or platforms? I'd say that there's definitely a role of sports, particularly as something that's a passion point that people care about and want to communicate about. We see a massive increase in snap engagement around big sports moments. So the World Cup or the Super Bowl or the NBA finals or for the Major League Baseball finals that we're seeing right now, college sports as well. But that certainly wasn't the reason, Sid, why they were looking for me to come in to potentially be the first CMO here. I had first run into Snapchat back in like 2013, 2014, working on the Gatorade business. A lot of the athletes, they were very consumer connected brands. So it was not uncommon mm -hmm. for us to be doing immersions or focus groups or what have you. And a lot of athletes were telling us like, hey, this is a platform that we use a lot to communicate with one, to one another. So I got engaged in the platform pretty early on. So I was on on Snapchat since 2013 and was probably one of the foremost marketers who was knowledgeable about the platform in so much that Gatorade became one of Snapchat's first 10 advertisers. Did a lot of fun stuff with the platform. I was actually in the investor video when Snap did his roadshow to go public. So I knew the platform very well. I personally have always had a proclivity towards innovation. That's probably more the reason that, you know, when they circled around a few years later and looking for a CMO, they wanted someone that understood the Snapchat audience and product and platform really well, was great from an innovation and creativity and storytelling perspective. Someone that can actually help to build out a marketing practice, which is some of the experience I had at NASCAR and other places. So that's what drove me. But whenever we have a chance to do something connected to sports, I get a little extra excitement uh, <laughs> associated with. Today is an uh, interesting day for me because after we finish our conversation, I'm going to be talking to the Dartmouth football team. Buddy Tevin's a longtime coach who you probably know. Excellent. Yeah. Or heard of is invited me to talk to the team about leadership in life. And I'm very, very excited about doing that. Maybe I should see what tip you might want to share. Uh, that would be pretty cool if I say, you know, I was just talking to this guy. You might know who he is. Because <laughs> <laughs> probably a lot of these football players will use Snapchat and they may very well know you because of your Dartmouth background now, CMO of, of Snap. It's funny you mention that. One of the last times I was at Dartmouth, I sat down with the basketball team as a former player there. One of the big messages I had for those guys was that so much of what they are learning right now Mm -hmm. So much of what they are experiencing right now 
is wholly and completely applicable to their future career. So as an athlete, you have to understand what it means to like put in that hard work and see what the results of that hard work look like mm-hmm. on the field, field of play. You have to understand what it's like uh, to win and to lose and to hopefully do so gracefully. You have to understand what it's about to work in collaboration and work in teams and using the strengths of the respective team members in order to reach or achieve a very specific goal. You understand the power in building a team and that connectivity. And, you know, I believe that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And if you build out that right culture, which you often have to do in team sports, that that can actually make the sum of the parts greater than the individual parts. I think you learn how to work with and deal with very different people because inevitably you're coming together with team members that have different backgrounds, different motivations, different personalities and style, different ways to be motivated. And you think of all of those pieces, things that I literally deploy every single day in the work that I do. Everyone getting aligned to a common vision and a common strategy, overcoming some of the personal biases and circumstances for the betterment of the team. And all of these lessons you learn are very, very applicable. So I try to give the lesson that like you're more ready than you think for many of the challenges you may face because of the experiences you're having right now. That's great. Thank you for that. I'm going to pass along some of those thoughts. When you were interviewing at Snap, because you've had other big jobs, was it really different? You already described you were kind of a good fit for this job, given things that you've done before. But was the interview process different? Did they ask you different types of things? Were you surprised, even though you were very familiar with Snap, this is the first time you were really in a Silicon Valley type, not quite Silicon Valley. What do you call it in LA again? I think they call it Silicon Beach. Silicon Beach, even better. So I'm just curious about that. I'd say that there were a few things that felt a bit different than other interview experiences. One is it was going to be critically important for me to be pretty simpatico with my boss, the CEO, who was also the co-founder. So unlike other businesses that I worked on where you were kind of the steward of an existing and longstanding business brand equity, this is something very, very different where my job was going to be or is to channel his vision and bring it to the market in a way that we also know is like motivating, inspiring for consumers. And my ability to get along with, frankly, and like have a similar worldview with my boss was probably more important there than any other circumstance that I'd been in. That I think was one piece that was really different. Second, it was a pretty lengthy interview process. I think I probably met with like 20, 25 people. And part of the process, frankly, Sid, was like education. Them educating me on this in the platform and me talking to them a bit about the role that marketing plays and could play potentially at this company, which in some ways is a little ironic because it's an advertising driven platform. So it's like we're constantly talking to marketers and advertisers, but hadn't really thought about applying some of that same thinking and discipline to our own business. The third was literally the thing that was really different is I went into a creative review and feedback session with the existing team and with my future boss, the CEO, just to figure out what the vibe was going to be. <laughs> Sometimes you'll have uh, as a part of a interview process, someone's like, hey, put together your 30, 60, 90 day plan or like, hey, we're going to do a group interview so I can understand your style. This was I want you to do the work right now. 
so I can understand how you operate, mm-hmm. how you give feedback, how you collaborate, how you communicate, how you engage. And that was very different. It was like a better than not, not a case study is not the right word, but like a role play. It's like better than a role play. It was like literally this is a project we're working on right now. It sounds like it was almost in a lab, so to speak. Yes. It was yes. an experiment of sorts, even though it was real. Exactly. That was very different as well. Have you subsequently used any of those techniques in hiring people for your own team? I've not put anyone through the lab thing because I thought that 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 was over the top. Yeah, it was over the top. It had like, you know, it could have been a disaster, right? I (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done that necessarily, but I have tried to be fairly rigorous with the hiring process, particularly with both senior leaders, because I'm going to need them to be able to influence in the same way that I try to influence and engage because you're constantly kind of proving out and supporting the role of marketing. So I want to make sure that we have the person that's capable of that. So the interview process can be kind of rigorous in that regard. Other thing that's actually pretty unique and special about Snap is that its culture is underpinned by these three core values of kind, creative, and smart. And trying to find someone who behaviorally lines up with that across a variety of experiences and scenarios, it's good to have a lot of probing and discussions with folks to make sure that you're smoking out behaviors that could be misaligned with those values. So on just one of those three, creativity, how do you or how can you assess the creativity of people that you want to hire? Yeah, of course, you could look at if they've won awards or things like that. That's pretty giant Simon. Not everybody's done that. Mm-hmm. How can you tell? How do you get a little bit of sense of comfort that this person really has got their head into they're comfortable in a creative world and, and like to think a little differently? I do a fair amount of assessment of creative problem solving mm-hmm. or like reframing of challenges and questions. Mm-hmm. So it's more about how they approach challenges that will showcase that creativity and how they're able to articulate. Oh, this is the challenge that I was looking at. This is how I framed it or this is how I approached or viewed it or took a creative frame to an everyday challenge, but completely saw it differently or completely took a different approach. So I'm often looking at creativity from a problem solving perspective. Mm-hmm. And then I'm looking for contributions to programs or strategies or campaigns pains than the role that they specifically had in providing that top spin and providing that creativity. One of the things that I've been able to smoke out through years of talking to candidates and whatnot is that oftentimes the people that were really engaged with the work and that were helping to problem solve in unique ways, you ask them about something that was really successful or something really no, something they had on their resume, they're going to tell you about the things that were left on the cutting room floor (laughs) or the problems. They will talk about that because they were so engaged and thinking so 360 about the problem or the challenge. From time to time in marketing, we'll have people that will almost like take credit for work that they may not have been closely associated with. And I can sniff that out too, because those are the people, they'll just gloss over like, oh, we did this. And it's like, no, no, no. Well, double click on that question. And if they aren't the people that can tell you that dear Peyton ad, that there were like five people that we interviewed that would have been amazing, but we actually had to leave it on the cutting room floor because Mm. of Peyton's discomfort or because his mom didn't like, you know, like those are the type of insights that you hear from people that were like deeply in the work and deeply engaging. And how typically will probe for your role, how you thought about problem solving, what are the things that were left on the cutting room floor? That gives me a sense of how deeply engaged people were and how they were able to kind of use their creativity. Those are great insights. I can imagine a lot of my students that are listening to this are going to be taking down some notes on making sure they're ready 
Although the job market is so amazing right now for MBA students, they're a little bit less concerned. Nonetheless, it's good to learn. Let me ask you this. What's like the best thing, the best part of your job? Thing that you just love to do? Because you do a lot of stuff and a lot of it is pretty cool. But if there's one thing you want to elevate up there that you really love doing, what would it be? Oh, man. So I think there might be two things. One is I get energy working with and leading teams. That is the former point guard in me. Nothing gets me more excited than there's a stoppage in play and you pull the team together and like we're all on the same page and make sure everyone is fired up and focused. There's a part of me that just loves working with and engaging with teams. It's one of my hip pocket skills that I've like heard over and over and feedback from a performance perspective. And I just love it. That's one component. I just love working in leading teams. The other thing very specific to marketing is that we make stuff that goes out into the world. There's something incredibly gratifying about that. You're starting with here was a strategy. Here is a business challenge that we needed to solve. And it resulted in a program, an event, a campaign. And there's this amazing journey. But at the end of the day, you have put something out into the world. So it's incredibly tangible. Is a parole officer or she's a retired parole officer. She had a very difficult job, worked incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. But she even marveled like, hey, I had an internship at Tropicana. She's like, hey, the project you told me about, I saw it at... <laughs> You know, at the Hamities down the street. So there's something really powerful about a new product that you're innovating, a campaign that whatever it might be, that it gets out into the world and it's tangible. And that's something that always makes me really energized and excited. That last point that you're mentioning is such a critical part of what makes in general, work of any type, exciting and meaningful and where happiness and work comes from. It's about impact. You want to have an impact on whatever it is. I think about it as asking a question that is a really, really good question because without that, there's nothing. You can come up with all kinds of answers to a question that's not that important and it's not going to get you anywhere. So it's got to start with the right question and then trying to figure out the answer. I mean, that's what we do in research, actually, and we do it in a lot of different places. And then to see it come to life in a way that means something to people, it touches them in some way, whatever way that happens to be, is a super cool thing. And that's what I'm hearing you say. So cool. You're absolutely right. Kenny, what a fun conversation. We're just about out of time. Let me ask you one last question, which is my advice question. But it's advice I'm going to ask you if you could magically go back in time to when you were, say, 20 years old. So I guess at Dartmouth, (laughs) when you were 20 years old and there you were, you know, sitting somewhere in a Baker library studying or walking down the street and Main Street in Hanover or getting ready for a game or what have you. If you could lean over to the 20 year old Kenny Mitchell and say, if there's one thing, one bit of advice I want to give you, one thing you want to think about, one thing that you probably wouldn't know at this age, but is going to be important. What might that be? What would that advice to yourself be? I have spent a lot of my career, even at that time, college life, volunteer career with a fair amount of imposter syndrome. Do I belong here? Am I good enough? Almost waiting for like a shoe to drop and operating with a little bit of fear in that regard. And by the way, I still feel imposter syndrome from time to time. Like I work at a tech company where guys are like NASA scientists and whatnot. (laughs) Right. I'm a marketer, so I definitely feel that from time to time. But I actually would tell myself that you are fully capable. You have all of the talent, all of the smarts, all of the skills. It sounds very cliche, but there's a bit of like both believe in yourself and do that in a way that doesn't limit your ambitions. All things are possible through the talent, skills, and things that you have inherently, and you belong. I wish I operated with that type of confidence or that type of tailwind. Mm -hmm. 
obviously I've done fine in my life and my career. And maybe some of that insecurity helped me have some of the successes that I've had. But I feel that I didn't even have big enough ambitions or big enough dreams and nor enough confidence to probably get to even higher heights and have a greater impact because that mindset that I had when I was younger. That's what I try to tell myself. Thanks for that honesty. You might not be surprised to know that other people have answered this last question in not that different a way. I would say the most common answer that I've gotten, it's not exactly the way you put it, but it's close, which is I was in such a hurry to prove myself. I just kept on going and going and going, and I didn't enjoy enough of the journey. Or another version of this is Jeff Mangiancalda is the CEO of Coursera, global learning organization. He was the first episode in this season, season four. And he said, you know, I wish, because he was CEO for 15 or 17 years and then took a break and went back to Coursera. And he said, I wish I wasn't so afraid of essentially was saying fear of failure. And that's all tied into imposter syndrome. Our students, you are one of them, but you know how good they are. A lot of people feel that. And frankly, I bring it up. I give them opportunities to talk about it. And then, of course, they talk about it themselves because that's one of the ways to confront these fears, to bring it into the open. And you recognize you're not the only one, right? That's There's right. lots of other people. But the truth is that it's most common among women and people of color. I've seen that time and time again in my experience. And it's just a bigger struggle. But you have to kind of face it, right? The way you just described. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to name it. And then you have to kind of have, I say, a little touch of arrogance. Never hurt anybody. <laughs> You got to be confident. Now you're looking back and it's not that your career is over. You're in smack in the middle of it, but you've been extremely successful and accomplished a great amount. But even earlier on, before you get to that stage, you can't let that type of imposter syndrome, those doubts win. It's a battle and you can't let that win. They may never go away completely, but you got to kind of lock them up a little bit and control it. I know that's easier said than done, but I'm kind of elaborating on your point at a little bit at length because I know a lot of the listeners, especially people earlier in their career, this is something they're thinking about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And your point about female and folks of color disproportionately impacting them is often because you don't have the model that you look up to. It's crazy that in 2022, still occasionally on the first list, the first black CMO to do this or that, you're just like, wow. So you do have those situations where you don't have necessarily those models that look like you that help you with that aspiration. But to your point, I was a bit more audacious and a bit more brave, like who knows what would have been possible. I frankly would have been a little bit more proud of myself coming through my career. That's what I would tell myself. There's no reason for you to not believe that you belong exactly where you are and can accomplish so much more. Mark Shapiro, who's the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays and a past guest on the show and a friend has told me just very recently, and in his view, the number one derailer of great talent is insecurities that you can't get a handle on, you can't control. We all have insecurities. Yeah. We want it to drive us. We want it to be a motivator and not make us unable to kind of get out of bed in the morning to take an extreme kind of metaphor on that. Well, Kenny, thanks so much. This has really been a fun and informative learning conversation, not just about marketing, but about life. Kenny Mitchell, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of Snap on the SITCAST. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you so much, Sid. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. 
The Sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.